Hey, I'm Naturalists. I'm Emily. I'm Andy. And welcome to the season two finale of Unnatural. Yeah, here it is. But don't worry, we're not going to be gone that long. And we're not like some of those podcasts that just disappear for six months and you keep checking their feed to see what the hell's going on. We're going to sprinkle in what we like to call somersodes or what I like to call somersodes. Emily's still fighting me on this. I am still fighting because I haven't I haven't come up with a better nickname yet. Oh, it's it's not it's not going to be anything else. You just have to face the inevitable. They're called the somersodes, whether you like them or not. Maybe. <laughs> I am not going to concede. <laughs> like three years later, you're still not conceding. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, what do we have for the big grand finale today, Emily? For the big grand finale today, we are heading back in time and across the pond to France. Ooh. To talk about a French doctor and serial killer who was convicted of multiple murders after 23 bodies were found in the basement of his home in Paris during World War II. Now, despite the fact that about 23 people were found in this basement, it is suspected that his kill count is well over 60. Whoa. Now, this case, being that it's in World War II, there's a little bit of anti-Semitism involved in here. So if that's something that is particularly triggering for you, you may want to skip out on this one. So let's get into the story of Dr. Marcel André Henri Félix Pio. Pio was born January 17th, 1897 in France. Sources here were kind of conflicting on his childhood because a lot of what people were talking about publicly from when he was little happened like after everything came out of him being a super trash human being. So it is speculated that some of the rumors and claims about what happened when he was a kid may have been fabricated. Little exaggerated, maybe. Yeah, exaggerated, fabricated, yeah. Uh, because there are a lot of stories about him getting into trouble, just being kind of an all-around juvenile delinquent. And there was one that said when he was 11, he brought his... Um, dad's gun to school and fired it and also tried to proposition one of his lady classmates for sex hmm. at 11. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. And then when he was a teenager, it was said that he was getting into some legal trouble of robbing mailboxes, and he was charged with damage to public property and theft. So some of this obviously is true because he did go under some sort of psychiatric evaluation in 1914, and he had been expelled from a couple different schools. And... At this, during this uh, psych eval, he was diagnosed as mentally ill. Now, I don't know what exactly he was diagnosed with because remember, this is 1914 and psychology yeah. isn't quite what it is today, but he was diagnosed with something. And then he ended up finishing out high school at kind of like an alternative school in Paris, and he graduated in July of 1915. 
Then during World War One, some sources say he was drafted, and other sources say that he volunteered to join the French military in uh, the following year in 1916. But um, it's it's how he got into the military, I guess, is neither here nor there because basically during that war they all had to be in it I yeah mean, because they were they were fighting for their country's existence so yeah he was in there either way he was there either way how he got there doesn't matter because he was there he did get wounded and gassed during the second battle of the Ains, and he started to kind of exhibit symptoms that he was having a, some sort of mental breakdown if you will and he ended up being sent to what they called rest homes at the time for military people that weren't like on the front lines fighting at this point in time but he was eventually arrested for stealing army blankets and he was sent to jail in Orleans. Aside from stealing the army blankets, it was also found that he had been stealing morphine, wallets, photographs, letters, and other army supplies. What he was stealing them for, I'm unsure. Maybe he was selling them or something. Maybe, but like, what would he need letters and photographs for? Yeah, that's weird. Who Yeah, who knows? It was weird. But anyway, he ended up being sent to a psychiatric hospital in um, north central France, which is like a suburb of Orleans. And he was again diagnosed with various forms of mental illnesses. But he did return to the war and was fighting again in 1918. Uh, And that was in June. But he was transferred a few weeks later after he had apparently, and sources here differ again, a couple sources said that he injured his foot with a grenade. Other Mm. sources say that he had shot himself in the foot, but... Oh, so maybe just trying to get out of the military or something? Yeah, but he was sent to a new regiment in September after his foot healed, But he wasn't, I mean, his foot was pretty damaged regardless of which way it was injured. And that was enough to get him honorably discharged. And he was receiving like a disability like package. Like a stipend or something. Yeah, Yeah, or like a pension or whatever. Then... After the war, and this this just kills me because it totally speaks to the times. So after the war, he applied and was accepted into this like accelerated education program for veterans. And he was able to complete medical school in eight months. Whoa. That's not something you see today. No. No. Eight months. <laughs> I would not want to have a doctor who only had eight months of experience. Well, and I wonder if that was even like... This is the early... And I hate that these words are even coming out of my mouth, but it was the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, did did eight months really seem sufficient, even if it was an accelerated program? Because people do accelerated programs these days, but I don't think any of them are yeah. in the medical field. I don't think so either. I think maybe a lot of the doctors were dead, too, because of the war. So maybe they just needed new doctors. Yeah, maybe that that would that would make sense. So he completed medical school and then started an internship at a mental hospital. And then he officially... Well, he had experience with those. Yeah, he did. And then he officially received his medical degree and doctorate in December of 1921. So after he completed that internship. He moved to a town in north central France and he was getting, you know, like he, he had a job as a doctor He was seeing patients, and he was also getting um, government medical assistance funds. So 
there was speculation that he was using these funds to fuel his narcotic addiction that he was experiencing, mm. but he was also um, giving narcotics to a lot of his patients that were eventually starting to struggle with addiction as well. I mean, like we know now how addictive narcotics can be and are. So back then they were passing them around like candy. Yeah. Like people were popping them like freaking Tic Tacs. So while he was working at this clinic, he started to develop a bit of a reputation for himself and one source said, and this just kind of killed me because it was it was translated from French, but the translation said he had, quote, gained a reputation for dubious medical practices. That's not something you want on your uh, resume. <laughs> no. So these dubious medical practices were he was supplying narcotics. Um, he was performing sketchy and illegal abortions. He uh, apparently was also overcharging people for the services just to kind of pocket that extra money. And he was also accused- So kind of like uh, American insurance companies today. Yeah, ag- exactly. That's where this guy is who they must have been taking <laughs> notes from, honestly. So now we are in the late 1920s era, like 1926. And it is around this time that- um, people think that he killed his first victim and she was a lady named Louise Delavaux and she was the daughter of one of Marcel's more elderly patients and he had allegedly had an affair with her now mm. she disappeared in May of 1926 and The neighbors had later said that they saw Marcel load something large into the trunk of his car, and then he drove away. Um, Police initially investigated her disappearance, but eventually dismissed her as just being a runaway. Like, she just kind of picked up everything and left and never looked back. Think about how often that happened back then. Yeah. I feel like back then, law enforcement kind of just uh, let a lot of stuff go. Yeah. Well, because you certainly don't think that people are just out here killing. But I wonder if how many runaways were actually murdered. Right? Probably a lot. Probably a lot. Remember um, all the... uh, craziness that happened with Belle Gunnis. I mean, mm-hmm. law enforcement didn't exactly do their due diligence with her for a number of years. Yeah. And that was around the same time frame. Yeah. It was. So, lots of sketchy shit was going on back in the day. Now, the same year, so like we're in 1926, Marcel ran for mayor of the town. Because, of course, he did. Because why wouldn't you? And here's what just kills me. He had hired a guy to insert himself into the politics and kind of run like a smear campaign to to make his opponent seem less desirable and apparently there was a point during a debate where this guy caused a huge scene and um marcel actually won so he won so he's dr mayor marcel now god dr murderer mayor yeah and wouldn't you know it while he was acting as mayor, he started a little embezzlement scheme where he was just taking the townspeople's money and putting it in his own pocket. Because, of course, he did. Yeah. I mean, this guy is a huge piece of shit. Yeah. And we're not even to the worst of what he has done. So in 1927, he somehow convinced a lovely young woman by the name of Georgette Lavallee 
convinced Georgette to marry him. And in 1928, they had a son together. Probably not the best call by Georgette here. She should have took a quick squiz and walked the other way. Yes, she should have. So eventually the townspeople and other government officials catch on to what our buddy Marcel over here is doing with the theft and his kind of not so legal financial deals. And he was eventually suspended as mayor pending some sort of investigation. And in August of 1931, he did resign. For whatever reason, about a month and a half later in October, he was elected as a counselor <laughs> for us for one of the districts. I can't believe it. But then unsurprisingly, in the next year, he was a, he was accused of stealing and lost his seat on the council. And then he eventually like somewhere in this point in time, he relocated to who is voting for this guy? You know what? This this must have been before women had the right to vote in France because they never would have put up with this shit. Wouldn't disagree. That's for sure. So in Paris, he is no longer an elected government official, but he is still a practicing medical doctor. And I don't know if he was working at a clinic or kind of like out of his house or what, but he started seeing patients and he made up certain credentials. So while he still like technically had his doctorate, he claimed that he had all of these different medical credentials that he did not have. Which was all bullshit. Yeah, it was all bullshit, but he still managed to create a somewhat positive uh, reputation for himself as a doctor. Too bad Yelp wasn't around back then. Yeah, for real. Um, But then it started coming out that he was getting back into performing illegal abortions and dealing with narcotics. And in 1936, he was basically what I understand is he was kind of given um, a certification for what we would know as um, like a medical examiner. So he started writing death certificates and he was sometimes writing fraudulent death certificates so people could cash out on insurance money or whatever. And then he was getting a cut. (laughs) What an asshole. And plus, this is this death certificate thing. This might be convenient for him with his whole uh, murder lifestyle. Yeah. And then and then it just keeps it just keeps it just it just keeps the hits going. keep coming. They do keep coming because also in 1936 he was um institutionalized for being a kleptomaniac. Well, I mean, we could have called that one. Well, yeah, but the fact of the matter was is that he was sent away for stealing shit all the time and he was evading taxes i hope he lost his license here uh, not necessarily because now we're getting to the point where world war ii and the fall of france begins oh yeah because germany takes over for a number of years yeah and so marcel our our Good, good buddy. He feels like a guy here. that he feels like a guy that would be involved with the Nazis. That's for sure. <laughs> we'll get there. So he starts giving French people fake medical certificates after they were drafted and forced into labor in Germany. Yeah, he was convicted of that in 1942, and also. He got got on his overuse of narcotics and two addicts had come to testify 
against him. And there was supposed to be three, I understand, but one of them had disappeared and he all he got was a fine. Jeez. A pretty hefty fine. Still though. Twenty four thousand or twenty well, no, I guess not really. Twenty four hundred francs. I don't know. What is that in US dollars? Oh, so a bit, a bit, because that is equal to two thousand four hundred and ninety three US dollars. And back then, that's a lot. Yeah, and I don't know if that accounts for inflation or not. Right. But whatever. It was still probably not as big a fine for what he did. Twenty four hundred bucks for all the shit he did. Not well, enough. Yeah, anyway, he should have been in jail. Marcel himself said that he was involved in developing secret weapons mm. that were killing Germans mm. and didn't leave any forensic evidence. <sighs> and he was participating in high level top secret meetings with all of like the ally and the French resistance. Yeah, and he was in the resistance and he was planting booby traps all over Paris and worked with a group of anti-fascist Spaniards. So he was like he was like the Batman of France trying to protect or like the Robin Hood or something. The Robin Hood. He was stealing from the Germans and giving to the Spaniards. Sounds like a Big old pile of bullshit to me. Um, yeah. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, there was no evidence to support any of this. <laughs> Shocker. However, we're going to fast forward here a little bit to this fun little fun fact. In 1980, United States spy master Colonel John F. Grombach was apparently part of a small independent espionage agency known as the quote-unquote pond that was operating from 1942 to 1955. And this guy said that Marcel had reported the Catlin Forest Massacre, German missile developments, and some names uh, of, like, like double agents Mm. type of whatever. So that's, I mean, that's kind of all alleged because there's no records of any of this. Yeah. Really? Plus, this is 40 years later. Yeah, 40 years later, and it's my understanding that it kind of could be up to interpretation if Marcel was actually responsible for all of this because, like, his name is just briefly mentioned kind Mm -hmm. of in a whole jumble of... Other things, yeah. Of other things. So during the German occupation, his new and most lucrative business was he... He kind of provided like an underground railroad of sorts for people wanting to escape the country. Hmm. And at this point in time, he is going by Dr. Eugene. And he was basically kind of on the down low telling people that he had ways of getting people who were wanted by the Germans out out of France and he could do that safely. Yeah. So he was telling people that he could get them safe passage to Argentina or Portugal or kind of other locations in South America. And he was charging 25,000 francs per person. I was going to say for him, there's always a price. He, he's not doing yeah. it out of, the, out of the goodness of his heart. That's for sure. Certainly not. So he pretty much told anyone he could get them out, even if they were of Jewish descent, resistance members, 
criminals, regular citizens. Mm-hmm. You know, if they could fork up the money, he could get them out. He also had three accomplices helping him. Raul Fourier, Edmund Pintard, and Rene Gustave. Nezende? You got to say it with confidence. Nezende. There you go. Now we're kind of getting into the nitty gritty of this fucking guy. Because while he was getting these people allegedly to safety, this is where people think that he was starting to commit a lot of his murders. So Marcel told his accomplices that um, officials from Argentina required all of the people entering the country to be vaccinated against diseases. And with with that, he used that as an excuse to inject people with cyanide. Holy shit. And then he took everything they had and disposed of the bodies. He did this eventually to his accomplices, too. See, this is why there's anti-vaxxers out there. <laughs> this is what they're afraid of, man. So at first, Marcel was dumping the bodies in the Seine, but he later started dismembering them and he would submerge them in a quicklime solution or he would burn them. Oh, my God. So these are the people that he said he was going to take to safety. Yeah. Oh, that's just awful. Yeah. Yeah. Super, super gross. Super gross. And a lot of them were, a lot of them were Jews just trying to get, get out and get away and get to safety is my understanding. Yeah. I mean, they're trying to get away from one maniac and then they get taken by another maniac. Yeah. So naturally, he's not, Marcel is not keeping a low profile because people keep disappearing yeah and then the gestapo finally heard his name and kind of figured him out and put him under investigation or surveillance or something and in april of 1943 they had figured out his quote-unquote route that he was using for his little underground railroad maneuver getting people to Safety and agent Robert Jodcom made a prisoner kind of get in to figure like to to kind of be like an undercover operative. Oh, but sure. since he was a prisoner, he would kind of be um, an acceptable loss, mm-hmm. if you will, if things didn't go down the way they were supposed to. And unsurprisingly, this prisoner vanished. Hmm. So then they were really on to him. Yeah. This is like one of the few and, times I'm rooting for the Nazis here. <laughs> right? I mean, I actually well, want them to get this guy. Then, because Marcel killed at least one of his henchmen and then brought on another one. But the cops kind of got a hold of his associates and tortured them until they did eventually confess that Dr. Eugene was Marcel Pio. So the men, the, the henchmen were eventually released from prison And then uh, I think they were trying to track down Marcel at this point in time. But things kind of took a turn because on March 11th of 1944, his neighbors called and complained to police that there was a really nasty smell and a lot of like dark smoke coming out of the chimney of Marcel's house. So we know what that is. 
Yeah, well, and the neighbors, like, there was a sign on the door that said he was going to be gone for a month. But they also knew that he had had another house kind of, like, a few blocks away. So, the police called him and... They were like, hey, this is happening at your house. And he was like, oh, I'll be there in 15 minutes. Don't go inside. Hmm. But like a half an hour, 45 minutes had passed. And then the police were like, okay, we have to do something because there's just a shit. Like there's a fire, obviously. And they were worried that it was going to spread. So they called in the fire department. And the firemen got into the house through a second story window And what they found, they were certainly not expecting because the the fireplace was like overflowing with bodies. Well, with body parts, wood and flames. Oh, man. So apparently the firemen like come out and they're like coughing and gagging. And then they say to the, the police, they're like. Fucking good luck, guys, because yeah. it's a shit storm in there. We got the fire under control. Now we're going to peace out. Peace out. Yeah. <laughs> I don't so know how you Marcel, say peace out in French, but yeah, peace out in French. Well, Marcel arrives and he's telling the police that he's a member of the French resistance and the bodies were... Um, Nazis and traitors and, you know, people in cahoots with the Germans. Mm -hmm. And at the time, people were kind of turning a blind eye to legit resistance activities. So the police were actually reluctant to arrest him and they let him go. Oh, my God. No. Yeah. So, police are searching the house, or no, they're searching the garage, and they found a, um, like a hole or a pit that was filled with quicklime and human remains. Oh, my God. And then inside the house on the staircase, they found a couple of like big, uh, uh, you know, like canvas sacks oh like bags yeah you know what i'm talking about like the big bags made out of canvas that also had body parts in it and they said that there was enough body parts for at least 10 complete bodies that they found at first and that's just at first yeah yeah so now they're kind of like this is seeming a little sus yeah this is more than just a resistance fighter Yeah, and then the kind of head of the Paris Police Department at the time, George Victor Massou, took charge of the investigation, and he he was first trying to determine if Marcel was actually killing for the resistance or for the Germans. And they did figure out that him killing for the Germans was the less likely of the two options because he got a telegram um, where Germans were being ordered or where the Germans ordered Marcel to be arrested as a quote unquote dangerous lunatic. Hmm. So even the Germans think he's crazy. (laughs) Even the lunatics think that he's a lunatic. (laughs) That's how you know you're crazy. Yes. So police go to his other apartment and wouldn't you know it, it had been abandoned. But they also found a large large amounts of chloroform, digitalis, and other types of poison. I think they found cyanide and they found um, a bunch of narcotic medication in just like large amounts. So then the German commissioner told them that um, the Gestapo had arrested him on suspicion of smuggling Jews. And the police had also 
gotten a hold of a guy who was trying to escape but changed his mind. And then he had told them that Marcel was offering people um, kind of asylum in South South America for 25,000 francs. Now, the police were able to convince two victims to testify against Marcel. Um, but they unsurprisingly disappeared. Shocker. Oh, I didn't see that one coming. Yes. And one of the witnesses had been found murdered. Did he do it with the cyanide or? I don't know. Hmm. So in the meantime, Marcel's brother, Maurice, had confessed that he was the one that was supplying the quick lime to his brother. And he, incidentally, was charged with conspiracy to commit murder and he was sent to prison. So he did he so he knew what his brother was doing with it? I don't know. I don't know if he knew exactly what he was doing with it, but he said, like, my brother told me to get this, so I did. Yeah. So he was just kind of charged and as an accessory. He was an accessory. Yeah. Yeah. And his wife, Georgette, was also arrested under suspicion that she was also helping Marcel and that they were actually his accomplices. Well, yeah. I mean, how would she not know about this? She lived in those places with him, I imagine. You'd think. I would imagine. I I mean, I don't know for for, for certain, but I would assume so. Yeah. So then on June 6th, 1944, um, the police kind of had to put a hold on the investigation because it was at this point in time that the Normandy invasion began. Oh, yeah. So... The British, the the Brits, the Americans, they're all coming in. Oh, boy. They're going to be in. Right. They're going to be in for a world of shit when they take this case over here. Yeah. So now it's um, during. I mean, Marcel at this point in time pretty much knows that the jig is up and it's only a matter of time before they come after him. Yeah. And. Um, During the following, like, seven months, kind of while the Normandy invasion is happening, Marcel and his friends and his wife kind of go into hiding. And he's claiming that the Gestapo wanted him because he had killed Germans and German informants. But there's no evidence of that, right? No, not that I am aware of. But, and I don't know how this came to be. I don't know if this is fact or not but i did see it mentioned in a couple sources that i read and it said that he moved in with a patient wow so i don't know if he just kind of dipped out on his wife and said bye bye <laughs> and Bu- he also well yeah and he's um he cut his hair he was letting his beard and his mustache like his facial hair grow out and i he imagine he changed using- his name again yeah, he started using several different aliases. Yeah. So he is going... I think he still used Marcel um, in some of them, but like he just had a different last name or he used completely different names. I think he dropped the Dr. Eugene because that one was kind of already... Sus. ...tainted. But then when the resistance and the Paris police kind of are starting to rise up against the German troops in Paris at this point in time, Marcel adopted the name Henri Vellery. And he joined the French forces of the interior. And he was able to become a captain in charge of counter-espionage and prisoner interrogations. Hmm. I don't... I, I don't know how he managed... To do all of this. I can't believe now, I didn't it. Fi- yeah. Well, I didn't find this actual newspaper article, which I would have been interested to read, but it was mentioned in a couple sources. And a newspaper um, published an article about Marcel. His, like during the eventual trial, his defense attorney from the um, 
narcotics case back in 1942 said that he received a letter in which his fugitive of a quote his fugitive of a client claimed that the published allegations were mere lies but this also tipped off police that he was still in paris Mm. so they're like all right he's here somewhere and they started um really ramping up the search for him and then finally on october 31st 1940 uh 46 46 i think um he was recognized by the police at the paris metro station and arrested and when he was arrested, some things that he had on him oh, were we a pistol, mm-hmm. 31,700 francs, 50 and um, 50 sets of identification, Jeez. like different documents, like IDs, passports, 50, 50, wow. 50. That is crazy. He was looking to get out of Dodge, man. Yeah. Okay, so he's arrested. He's sent to prison at the Lasante prison in Paris. Now, he said that he was innocent of all of this. The only thing he did was be a good Frenchman, and he was killing enemies of France. Bullshit. I didn't know that he was part of the resistance. I didn't know that people trying to get away from the Germans were enemies of France. Well, and then they're like, so what are all of these bodies in your house? And he was like, well, I found those <laughs> in February of 1944. And I just assumed that they were traitors or Germans killed by somebody else in the resistance. And he kept them like why he was collecting well, yeah, them. Well, well, well yeah. Uh. And while he was, he was disposing of them because he was in the process of burning them. Oh, yeah, but the fire he, just got a little bit out of control. Because he was a good Frenchman. Yeah. Yeah. Makes However, sense. the police were like, no, no, no. Because you actually don't have any friends that are major parts of the resistance. Mm hmm. Some of the resistance, like, groups that he talked about as being, like, a part of. Didn't even know who he uh, was. They didn't exist, period. Oh, they didn't exist. (laughs) They didn't exist. And there was really no proof of anything he claimed. So prosecutors eventually charged him with, uh, on 27 counts of murder for profit, they estimate that he he got over 200 million francs from these people trying to escape that he wow. killed. Motherfucker. So in March of 1946, he was facing a grand total of 135 criminal charges, including murder, conspiracy. Um, there was some narcotics charges in there. I don't know what all of the charges were. Um, A shit ton, though. A shit ton. And he still maintained that all of the victims had been collaborators or double agents or traitors or Germans or or just like whatever he could. And that all of the people who vanished were alive and well in South America with brand spanking new identities. Yeah, right. But he did admit to killing 19 of the 27 victims found in his house. Hmm. But but they were all um, Nazis or like sympathizers. Mm-hmm. Bullshit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I call bullshit. So I, I, I think his lawyer tried to spin it that he was like this vigilante hero yeah. um, that he was just like this major part of the resistance and 
blah, blah, blah. But that didn't necessarily work out for him at all, actually, because he was convicted on 26 counts of murder and sentenced to death. And then on May 25th, 1946, he was executed. Do you want to guess how? Oh, was it the guillotine? It was the guillotine. (laughs) They were still doing the guillotine back then, huh? Yeah. But he did. He almost, almost escaped losing his head because the first time they were going to execute him, there was an issue with the guillotine. There was like a malfunction. Mm. So they um, waited a few days, got it fixed, and then he was beheaded. Oh, my God. And he ended up being buried at the Ivory Cemetery in Paris, which apparently is like a like a really it's like a it's it's like a um what do you call it like a historical almost like a tourist attraction really yeah it's a um because i i had wondered in the sources why they mentioned where he was buried and um I bookmarked the Wikipedia page here, but it says it is one of the extramural cemeteries of Paris located blah, 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 less than 500 meters outside of Paris's intramural area. And it's like a green space and a refugee for wild flora and fauna. Hmm. Like if you Google it, it's I mean, it's just like any old cemetery, but it's really pretty. Huh. Too pretty for him. Well, there's a bunch of notable people buried there yeah. as well. Um, there's like a lot of artists, a lot of playwrights, um, historians, composers. No, the last surviving World War One poilu, hmm. which is a term for French infantrymen. It'd be interesting to go there, take a quick squiz around yeah you want to take a trip to france and go to the ivory cemetery let's do it let's do it yeah that is a wrap on season two of unnatural and a wrap on this week's episode i can't believe it's finally here we did what like 40 episodes this season or something like that. It was a lot. All the way from Tanya Cash to France. How about it? High five for us. Two interviews this season. Mm-hmm. Two cool interviews. Insightful and interesting yeah. and eye-opening. Absolutely. We went through a lot this past year. Yeah. Emily fell asleep. I fell asleep a few times. There was lots of uh, us trying to wake the other one up. Yeah. Good times. Good times to be had by all. Good times indeed. And an awesome fan base. We have the best fan base. And even though we are going to be taking a little bit of a break, something that never takes a break is our social media. So you can still come hang out with us on Twitter, Unnatural the Pod. Instagram, Unnatural the Podcast. We have a Facebook page, Unnatural, a true crime podcast. If you have any case ideas that you want to hear us cover for season three, send us those suggestions to unnaturalthepodcast at gmail.com. And also consider signing up for our Patreon page where you will get early access to ad-free episodes, bonus content, and more. I am, while we're on this break, going to redo the tiers a little bit. Actually, what I'm going to do is just going to make it one tier. You choose what you want to contribute and then you just get access to everything it'll make it easier for us it'll make it easier and more fun for you guys so check that out at patreon.com slash unnatural the pod and as always please be sure to give us a rating hit that subscribe follow hit that subscribe and follow button and share us with your friends i would say we would talk to you next week but we won't i think like 
what do you say? Something like three weeks. It'll be about three weeks, and then we'll have a little, a teeny little bonus episode, a summer sode, if you will. A little bonus episode. I like it. I like your little jingle package you're making here. It's nice. <laughs> All right. And with that, as always, be sure to make good choices. And don't get got. Bye. See ya. Bless you. <laughs> and there it is. The okay. last little part of COVID leaves her body. Bye-bye, COVID. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and Renee Gustav Nezende? You got to say it with know. confidence. Nezende. There you go. <laughs> I'm waiting for the one asshole who sends us an email and it's like, here's all the words she mispronounced. Yeah, no, I mean, hey, <laughs> I would not even be mad because I'm always willing to learn. Like, I I don't speak French at all, so I don't know how to pronounce French words and French names. Like, I took I took Spanish in high school, so I can I can do Spanish pretty okay, pretty good. But French, Mm-mm-mm. beautiful language. Yeah, love well, it. It's one of the love languages. It is one of the love languages. I would like to learn French. I know how to say like three things: Je m'appelle Emily. My name Au is revoir. Emily. Bonjour, oui, un deux trois. Ooh, you you even had the accent there. I did it a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Trois. Andy, come back. Any kind of fool could see there was something in it about you. Any man. What? Ow! 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 I was I was singing a song that I couldn't remember the lyrics of. You know the song that's like, "Baby, come back." Yeah. Any kind of fool can't see. Yeah, you know, but I was like, Andy, come back.